This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we're going to be beginning a systematic study through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is, along with the Gospel of John, one of two Gospels that was written by one of the twelve disciples. The other two Gospels, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, were compiled by men who were not themselves a part of that core group along with Jesus and His earthly ministry, but were taught and informed by those that were. Mark writing his Gospel under the teaching of Peter, and while Luke seems to have pulled from a number of resources and, and first-hand witnesses of the life of Christ, including some of the other Gospel accounts. If you have spent much time in the different Gospels, you will notice there's some differences in, in tone, differences of, of pace, differences of emphasis. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us to see that. Each author was writing these things down for a specific purpose, with a particular audience in mind. Even though their intention was that these letters, these, these texts, would be circulated around, they still wrote them because of a particular purpose. They had a particular issue they were trying to address, a particular audience they were trying to strengthen. As an example, Mark seems to be more con concerned with the events of Jesus' ministry and the miracles than he is about the lengthy teaching times or the parables. Mark's Gospel is, has such a rapid pace, it almost makes you exhausted just to read it. You see things regularly like, immediately they did this, and then immediately they did that. At once this happened. Or, while they were talking, immediately this occurred. Rapid action and response throughout. Reading Luke, you can see that he had a Gentile audience in mind, namely Theophilus. Luke was systematic in detailing the events that took place as he compiled them in both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. In both of those places, Luke's make it, Luke makes it clear that he has taken pains to make an orderly account so that his audience would understand all that had taken place. It was as though he was preparing for a legal defense of the ministry of Jesus and the early work of the Apostles. John wrote his Gospel last. And it contains the most developed and clear theology of the person of Christ. You can feel the closeness that John enjoyed as the beloved disciple, one of the three inner circle with Jesus. And even as he recounts all these events that took place, he makes clear that his purpose is that people would know exactly who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and that in seeing this, that they would believe in Him. Well, what about the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew had a Jewish audience in mind as he wrote this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Like the letter to the Hebrews that we have looked at the last few weeks, 
There is a strong emphasis in Matthew on seeing Jesus as the climax, as the fulfillment of the Jewish religion, showing that he has accomplished and fulfilled every purpose of the faith, every purpose of the traditions of their fathers. It is in his mind to show that it was all, always about Christ. Matthew regularly points back to the Old Testament to show how Jesus is the long-expected Messiah of God. He uses Old Testament references and shadows and, and people and stories to prepare the Jewish audience to be able to accept the truth claims of Jesus, especially where they were in conflict with the teachings of the leaders and the teachers of the Jewish people of that day. So, you might ask, since we are mostly Gentiles here, why would we choose to go through the Gospel of Matthew, which was written for a Jewish audience, rather than focus on the Gospel of Luke, which was written for a Gentile? Doesn't Matthew's writing assume a certain understanding of Jewish history and tradition in the Old Testament? I would say, actually, it is because... We can't just assume the same native knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament that the Jewish people of that day had. It's because of that that I think it's actually wise for us to look to the Gospel of Matthew. It will just mean we have to do a little bit extra work. We can't just cite Old Testament allusions and references, but we'll have to explain and teach through them as we go. Our goal is that as we work through this Gospel, we would become more familiar, more comfortable with how the gospel ministry of Jesus fits in with the redemption story as a whole. See, our faith is not based on a few isolated years within human history. Our faith is based on the whole revelation of God and His faithfulness to His people throughout the history of redemption. From the decrees of God in eternity past, to creation, to the end of the age, and the promise of glory in eternity. So today, we begin the labor of love that will be going through the Gospel of Matthew. And I am confident that it will be a blessing for us all. But before we begin, join me once more in prayer. Father, I dare not utter a word from your scripture. I dare not comment on one word that you have uttered were it not for your spirit dwelling within me and for your promise that your spirit will go out, will confirm the truth of your word. You promised the apostles that as they went out, the helper would come and remind them of all they have been taught. I pray for that same grace as we look to the words that they have written for us. That you would take these truths and instill them in us. Make them the air we breathe. Father, be gracious to us. Be honored. Be praised. Be loved and adored among us. Praise things in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, Lord willing, we will be looking at the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time. We plan to take six weeks just to get through the genealogy of Matthew in the first 17 verses. Now, I may be able to understand what you're thinking right now. Pastor, six weeks on a genealogy? Are you trying to bore us to death or to make sure that we don't come back? Well, in reality, I think that this will actually be pretty interesting and helpful. Lord willing. A couple of quick notes about this genealogy that we find in the first 17 verses of Matthew. This isn't an exhaustive list of every person in the direct line from Abraham to Jesus. It was common for someone writing out a genealogy in that time and era and that culture to be selective in who they included in that list. Often they would leave gaps that make it impossible for us to, to get an accurate timeline of how many years was it between one person to their descendants. Matthew had intention and purpose in those he included in his list and even in the way that he ordered his list. Another thing to note, it is okay that the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew and the genealogy found in the third chapter of Luke don't match perfectly. It's okay. It is, there are a number of theories about why exactly that there's some differences there. Uh, one I think is the most plausible is that one is following the kingly line. So the, the, the lineage of the, the throne of, Jerusalem, of Israel that would pass down generation after generation, while the other followed the direct bloodline of Christ, of Joseph. And that these two lists, it shouldn't be surprising at all if we know anything about history and monarchs, that these two lists would diverge and converge at different places as the royal line would shift from one son possibly to a second son if, if the oldest son didn't produce or died too early before leaving an heir. That's a common thing in, in a royal line. So there are differences, and it doesn't need to be something that shakes our faith. There are reasonable explanations that these two genealogies are different. Besides that, Matthew roots his list back to Abraham. As I said, there's intention in who he, he accounts there. While Luke has much less structure in his genealogy and goes all the way back to Adam. Again, leaving gaps in the line. Well, we're going to spend these next handful of weeks looking at some of the important people in the lineage of Jesus. We want to focus on how their stories are important for us to understand the story of Christ. We will see how God chose to bring about the salvation of His people through the incarnation of His eternal Son. And as we look at these stories and these people and these lists, it's not always going to look like what we would have expected. And my prayer is that in doing so, we can recover some of the richness of the gospel that we lose when we only see it through Gentile eyes or through New Testament eyes, neglecting the rich heritage that had come before. This is my aim to both refresh our memory of the history of the Old Testament and to show how God has been continually at work throughout history to provide for the salvation of those who would call upon His name. I think we will find this both interesting and encouraging to look at some of the ancestors of Christ as we find out 
how God had been revealing all along what His Son would accomplish on this earth. And like Matthew, we will be selective in what we focus on as we go. We begin our study of the line of Christ with the first patriarch of the Jewish nation, Abraham. Matthew begins his gospel with this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, it was important for Matthew and for his Jewish audience to find Christ directly in the line of both David and Abraham. It was important in order that he would be shown, that Jesus would be shown to truly be all that was prophesied about the coming Messiah. And the Jews were particularly concerned with seeing a Messiah that was in line with the patriarchs, a Messiah that really was from them and for them. Now for the Jew reading this, hearing this letter in the, in the first century, the mere mention of the name of Abraham was enough to bring back his entire life story to mind to bring to imagination all of, of his life and dealings, all that God had done with him and through him, all that would have come flooding into the mind of the Jewish believer and his Jewish audience. When we consider that story, the story of Abraham, what we will find is that Jesus was the goal in mind, in the mind of God, when he both chose and called Abraham but not for the Jews alone, but for all the nations of the earth. Well, as we prepare to look at the story of Abraham and how it is important in our expectation of the Christ, let us briefly look at where Abraham fits in within history. Just a quick overview of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I'm actually going to be quick. Genesis 1, God created all things. Genesis 3, man sinned against God and brought a curse upon creation. Genesis 6, mankind becomes so corrupt that God destroys all of mankind except for Noah and his family in the great flood. And by the time we get to chapter 11, man once again had become numerous and decided to, that they would make a name for themselves by building a tower to heaven at Babel. And then in response to their refusal to be fruitful and multiply and scatter, and their arrogance about building their own way to God, God scattered them across the earth and confused their language. Well, within a few hundred years of that event, we find the story of Abraham beginning in Genesis 12. When we first meet Abraham, or Abram, as he was then called, he is living with his father in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is near what, what now is called the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iraq. He went with his father to travel to the land of Canaan, yet they only made it as far as Haran, northeast of Palestine. And it is in that place that God calls Abram, as we read in Genesis 12, 1-3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, before he was called by the Lord, we have almost no information on Abram other than we can piece together that he was married to his beautiful half-sister Sarai, who would later become known as Sarah. It is most likely that Abram was a wealthy, nomadic pagan who took part in moon worship like everyone else from his homeland. He had traveled with his father's household to Ur from Haran, likely in search of better grazing land for their livestock. At, this, at that point in his life, we have no indication that Abram had any knowledge of the true God. We only see that he had sense enough to obey when he heard his voice. Abram knew only what God had revealed to him. And God had promised to make his descendants into a plentiful nation. He had no way of knowing that through his bloodline would come the most important person ever to walk the face of the earth. And more than that, the person from whom and for whom all things were created. You know, a great many interesting things happen in the life of Abraham. There are just a couple things that I want to focus on this morning. The first thing I want us to look at is the promise that is made by God to bless the entire world through Abraham. And the second thing we'll focus on is how Abraham was counted righteous before God not by any work that he had completed, but by his faith. Both of these truths about Abraham would be key for helping the Jewish readers of Matthew understand and accept the message of Jesus and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. Well, from the moment he was first called by God, it was promised to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. We see that in his initial calling that we already looked at, and that promise was echoed again later on in Genesis 22, 16 through 18. But this time, it's after Abraham had proven his faith in the Word of God, his willing to be obedient to God, up to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his only son. We read there, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In that promise, we have a hint as to how Abraham would become a blessing to all the nations. Because of his willingness to sacrifice his only son, because of his faith in God, this great promise was received. In the future, his descendant Jesus would be the Father's only son, offered up so that by faith in him, this promise would be fulfilled in the lives of all the nations. In Abram's offspring, every tribe every tongue and every nation of the earth would be blessed as they, by the same faith of their father Abraham, 
would be grafted into the people of God. So, in beginning his genealogy with Abraham, Matthew satisfies the need of the Jewish audience to have a Messiah that came from Abraham, while at the same time, he is preparing them to accept what will be very hard for them to accept. See, the significance of Messiah's connection to Abraham was not just to satisfy Jewish pride and a sense of entitlement. It was to show that Jesus is the long-promised descendant who would be a blessing to the nations. See, at the time of Christ, one of the most proud claims and boasts of the Jewish people was that they were descendants of Abraham. John the Baptist confronted the religious leaders of Israel who believed that their portion, their position with God, was guaranteed based on that physical claim. We read in Matthew 3, 7-10, But when he saw, speaking of John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, think of the shock to the system that this must have been to the Jews of that day. They had believed themselves for centuries to be irrevocably precious and singular in the eye of God. It is no wonder that the first two men to prominently challenge that view in the New Testament were both killed for their teaching. The Jews of that day believed that their standing as the chosen of God was guaranteed based on their physical relationship to Abraham. Yet John warned them not to look there for hope. Because God was able to fulfill His promise to make a great nation out of Abraham without them. See, they could fail, yet God's promises would still stand. God didn't need them. Paul distinguishes between the offspring of Abraham in general and the offspring, who is Christ, in Galatians 3.16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promise made to Abraham to bless all the nations was the promise of the Messiah who would come from among them to save them, to save all of them, both Jews and Gentiles. Just as we are told in Romans 9, 6-8, through 8, Paul said that it is not though the word of God has failed, speaking of a response to the fact that Israel by and large had rejected the Messiah, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. Abraham had more sons than just Isaac. Isaac wasn't even his firstborn. 
Yet it was Isaac through whom Abraham was promised that he would be made into a nation that would bless the earth. Jesus was the promise that was made to Abraham who was to come through Isaac. And all who believe in Christ, who put their faith in Christ, are the same promised descendants of Abraham. Isaac was the result of faith. And by faith in his descendant, namely Christ, all who are brought into the, all are brought into the family with Abraham. We are all by faith in Christ made descendants, true descendants of Abraham. This is the blessing that was promised to Abraham for the nations of the earth. The Jews who had denied Jesus, while they may have had some claim to the fleshly physical connection of Abraham had no claim to the promise of Abraham. As a result, they were not truly part of the people of God. At the same time, the Gentiles who believed were by their faith counted as though they were of Abraham. They were grafted in to the family of God. But one of the most remarkable things spoken of Abraham is that it is by his faith that he was counted as righteous. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. While the Jewish leaders of Matthew's day touted their superior righteousness based on their strict adherence both to the law and to the extra teachings and traditions of their fathers, the story of Abraham ought to have given them a sense to pause, to reflect on how Abraham himself was declared righteous. As we read in Genesis 15:6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This man, Abraham, who had spent the first 75 years of his life serving the gods of his homeland, living for himself, was counted righteous in the eyes of God simply by his faith. He didn't have to turn his life around and then go out and perform some mighty deeds in the name of the Lord in order to be counted as righteous. There was no quest that he had to complete in order to achieve that status. He was counted righteous because of his belief in God. And this great truth, this great wonder would become a regular rallying cry for the apostles in the New Testament. They labored hard to unify the Jewish believers who had been taught to be righteous by following closely to the law and then had come to accept Christ, as well as the Gentile converts that lacked any history or tradition and possessed only the faith by which they were saved. We read an account of this in Galatians 3, 5-9. through 9. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it, was, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Somehow, through an act of blinding that was both willful and spiritual, the Jewish religious leaders had missed one of the most important elements of the story of Abraham. Remember I said that just the name of Abraham should be enough to recall all of his life to their minds. Yet after the law was given to them, they forgot that the first father of their nation was counted righteous apart from the law by faith. They had forsaken dependence on faith in God in order to have a right relationship with Him, and they instead had become even more and more dependent on their works, on their self-made righteousness according to their self-made standards. They added to the, their tradition to the law so that they might, by greater sacrifice, by greater diligence, achieve a greater righteousness. They needed the words of Paul in Romans 4, 1-5, through 5, where he says, What shall we say that we have gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The Jewish religious system had come to believe and teach that according to their works and their sacrifices, they were made righteous. In their minds, it was only fair and natural that they would enjoy a right standing before God. They had been born into it. And they had maintained themselves as worthy to it by their actions. What the apostle claimed was that even from the time of Abraham himself, righteousness was obtained as a gracious credit from God through faith in his son. The faith and obedience of the Gentiles was anticipated and promised even in the story of Abraham. Something we will see echoed again as we continue in this genealogy, easy to say, in weeks to come. In connecting Abraham to the Messiah, the Jewish audience would begin to be prepared for the fulfillment of God's promise as the Gentiles were granted faith and as the Gentiles were brought in as descendants of the promise to Abraham. We must remember who Matthew's audience was. Matthew wrote this gospel in order to prove to a Jewish reader that the Jesus of Nazareth was truly the long-expected Messiah. And we will see a multitude of references to the fulfillment of prophecy in the life of Christ as we work through this gospel. The Jewish establishment missed what was clearly before their eyes. They had rejected the promised one of God. They had become so committed to their expectation of what salvation must look like that they could not accept that God would come and He would come in the human flesh and sacrifice Himself to restore man to the Father. That wasn't the salvation that the Jewish people had been longing for. And for many, it wasn't the salvation they wanted. Matthew had the task of proving that even though Jesus didn't fit the picture of what they thought the Messiah would look like, 
that His life and His sacrifice fulfilled all that Scripture had promised. This connection between Abraham and Jesus was that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. That He is the blessing to the nations. And the faith that was credited to Abraham as righteousness, we will see clearly laid out in Scripture elsewhere, was a faith that was only possible because of the work that Christ would accomplish so many years later after Abraham and his death and resurrection. This connection between the story of Abraham and the coming Messiah would be one that would inspire many passages throughout the New Testament. It would go very far in shaping our understanding of, of righteousness by faith alone. So what better place could Matthew have started in his genealogy what better place could he have started in declaring and stating the life and the ministry of Jesus than pointing back to Abraham? Well, what can we take away from this connection between Abraham and Jesus this morning? Certainly this must be more than just an interesting side note in how the Bible fits together and is consistent and interesting. Well, there are a couple of things I pray that we take away from, with, from here today with us. The first thing I want us to take away is a renewed sense of awe of just what Christ accomplished as the Son of God came down to earth in human flesh. The salvation of the Gentiles, our salvation, was part of the plan of God all along. This should really cause us to worship. This should bring about a response of praise to us. We were part of the plan of God all along. <coughs> From before the foundations of the earth. We were not simply a nice little add-on that, that God was able to pick up along the way. We were not a plan B when God's chosen people wouldn't play along. Our inclusion and our salvation was promised to Abraham long ago before there even was a Jewish people that had been called and set apart by God. Our inclusion was obtained by Abraham's seed of promise, that is Christ. God always desired, and He always deserved, to be worshipped from the whole earth. As we read in Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preser preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is worthy of praise and worship from every nation. And in Christ, He calls worshipers from every nation to Himself. God sent His Son as the promised offspring of Abraham so that it might be proven that His plan was always for the nations of the earth. He came in that way. He came to that nation that it might show that God had provided all that was necessary for a right relationship with Himself. All this promised to Abraham many centuries before. But the second thing I want to take away from the story of Abraham just to make us aware that it is very easy to claim to be a, claim, have a claim to God, to have a claim to God like the Jews did with their claim to Abraham, even while we seek God's favor 
in a different way than He has prescribed for us. We want to be a part of the heritage of Abraham, yet we think we can get there on our own merit rather than obtaining it the same way Abraham did, by faith. The Jews are not the only ones who are guilty of this. Often we claim claim our connection to Abraham by faith, yet we seek to maintain our place with God through our works. Paul rebukes the church in Galatia for the same perversion of the gospel. Galatians 3, 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit and you now being perfected by the flesh? How many of us are guilty of this in our lives? How often do we live as though through faith according to the grace of God may have saved us, but we don't really need that grace anymore? We accept forgiveness when we fail, but we often think we are doing all right by our actions. And often the way we live is as if to say, thanks God, but I've got it from here. The true Christian life is not simply begun by the work of Christ and the grace of God. It is maintained and completed by the grace of God and the work of Christ. It is begun by faith. It is completed by faith. When we seek to take control over our righteousness, we are saying as though we would be better off on our own, that we have a better plan than God. We don't consciously think that, but we act often live that out as we seek to chart our own path or to maintain our own peace with God. And we do all of that even though that was the very thing that had us held bound before God saved us. Let us never forget that it is by grace alone and faith alone that we were saved. And it is by grace alone and faith alone that we will be kept Oh, that we would be a people who would daily rest in Christ, daily rest in what Christ has done for us, and that we would constantly look to Him for our position before God. That we would no longer seek to take up a mantle that we were never able to bear, as if we could seek once again to satisfy God by doing things on our own. May it never be said of us, that we have traded the true gospel for one of our own making. May we hold to the very faith that brought us from darkness into marvelous light. May we learn to be reminded of these truths early and often. When we fail and when we succeed. When we stand and when we fall. When we are reminded of the gospel. And yes, even when we read of Abraham in a genealogy. Father, I give you all honor and glory and praise. The wonder of the gospel is is too much for us to bear. May your Spirit do His work within us. Open our eyes, Father. Don't let us try to continue in the flesh what was begun by faith. Remind us always of the gospel, of our dependence on Christ, of of the promise of Abraham.
Pray things in Jesus' name. Amen.